Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 73 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And I met today's guest. He's a first timer on this uh, podcast back in 2017. And we got to reconnect at the, the Raise the Bar conference in Orlando this February. And at both events, Brett Bartholomew uh, he's got a pretty powerful presence on the stage, just as he de- does across the fitness industry. So I want to p- dive into that a little bit with Brett today. But a little bit about Brett for those of you guys who may not be familiar with him. I really hope you are. He's the owner of The Art of Coaching. He's wearing his hat and his shirt on the video I can see and has a podcast of the same name. And he's the author of the book Conscious Coaching, which I suspect very strongly is the thing that everybody is first and foremost familiar with about your work, Brett. Um, it's great to have you on here, man. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, likewise, Andrew. Appreciate you. Yeah, you gotta. Uh, when you're the founder of a company, it, you you should wear that brand, right? It's like if I ran Uber, I'm probably taking Uber. If I ran Lyft, I'm gonna take Lyft. So, uh, you know, this is something that we we it started with me, but now we have a remote staff, and that's one of the things that. We, we always say, hey, if we're not going to share the office, we're not going to share the same space, we at least have to share the same ideals. So, you know, I want to lead by example in that. And uh, otherwise, it's kind of like, what's the point, right? But yeah, in the meantime, you got to stare that ugly logo in the face. So I don't envy you. I, I like your logo. So, but it ties in perfectly to the first thing I want to talk to you about, because you talk a lot about branding. And you come from the football world and strength and conditioning world, where standing out and having your own brand is frowned upon, discouraged, or just not sort of normal. And you bucked that trend, embraced it, and initially to some, uh, I don't know, derision. But uh, why? what compelled you to break from that cultural mindset, build the business that you have? And would you encourage other people to do the same? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I would always like to hear the opinions of people that took the opposing view. Right. Which uh, for me at one point in time, I was a part of that. My mentors, you know, I started out, like you said, it was mainly football, collegiate strength and conditioning. Uh, then since I've gone on to work with 23 sports. But, you know, whenever somebody in strength and conditioning said, hey, you know, strength coaches are supposed to be seen, not heard. You know, I believe that hook, line and seeker uh, until one of my athletes said, so let me get this straight. You make a living teaching other people, but you don't think anybody outside of these four walls would want to learn from you. You know, and it was also evident when I interacted with other professions. I had a dentist that didn't just stay a dentist his whole life. He owned a dental practice. I knew chefs that weren't just chefs. They owned a restaurant. I knew musicians that they went on to kind of create a record label. So, you know, you start kind of looking around and I noticed that, huh? In strength and conditioning, I didn't really notice a whole lot of happily married, financially secure, healthy, happy strength coaches. And you start looking, is this industry specific? Um, Because every other industry, people are supposed to evolve. They're not supposed to do the same thing. I also thought it was odd that we tell athletes to have a life and they go on and create a brand after playing in the NFL or the NBA. Um, But we don't do those things. So you started looking at a little bit of the psychological principles behind that. and, And a lot of this is tied into my doctorate is, you know, there's, there's just cognitive dissonance. The same reason why we believe a lot of strength coaches said, hey, it's not about the money. Well, I don't know one person whoever said, Hey, I'm getting into strength and conditioning. And then people were like, Oh my God, Sally, we raised him wrong. He's in it for the money, you know, like, and so you looked at this and like Amos Tversky says, the absence of a feature is not a feature or is still a feature. And so what you kind of realize if, if anybody's familiar with Irving Goffman's work in impression management, you realize, Oh my God, the strength and conditioning profession absolutely is 
feverish about branding. They just use what's called an exemplification tactic, meaning so many strength coaches, because it's a highly competitive field with scarce resources, appeal to moral virtue. Oh, I'm in it for the right reasons. I'm not in it for the money. I'll do it cheaper than this guy and or gal, right? I'm going to use that as a ubiquitous term here. And then you realize like, oh, like that's their differentiation. So I started diving into more of that research. And I found that that really started in education when substitute teachers were trying to get jobs and they would kind of get a foot in the door taking a sub role. And then they'd want a more consistent job, right? Who wouldn't? So they start thinking, what, what levers can I push and pull here from a power dynamic standpoint so that I'm considered? And so I think looking, one, I was that guy who believed these things for a long time. And then I realized, thank God, somebody decided to brand hotels and create hotels. Because in history, it's reasonable to believe that somebody might have been tired when traveling and needed a safe place to stay. Just like people need advice from a wide range of individuals. Another thing that I bought into early without really thinking about it or being critical of myself is, uh, you know, what are you going to say that nobody else has already said? Man, did I believe that, you know, and, and like me at 23, I mean, just like you couldn't have convinced me otherwise. And then again, it was an athlete of mine who said, Hey bud, just because somebody else has said it doesn't mean that that person still doesn't want to hear it from you. So what I really did, Andrew, is I found that I was really devaluing what I, what I was and overvalued what I wasn't because I realized that the capacity to think in general is original, right? Like, yeah, you don't need to invent something new, but for you to take a new take on it, right? Because the wheel becomes the cart, the cart becomes the automobile, the automobile becomes the airplane, the airplane becomes the space shuttle. That's the capacity to think. You and I can share a meal. We can't digest it through a collective stomach, right? Like we can't like, and so, yeah, it was just a lot of really facing my own biases. And the last thing that really kind of woke me up to it was a friend of mine named Carl Coward when I released uh, our first online course and I was adamant, I did not want my image on it. I did not want any of that. And he said, why not? And I told him the reasons that, you know, we had talked about, listen, in my field, that's not what you do. And you're kind of looked at as a guru. And he said, do you ever think that maybe you have an overeducated, but very unintelligent field? Because in many businesses, if you do not stand behind your product or don't put a face to it, that's almost saying that you don't endorse your own work. And then I thought of Tommy boy. Oh yeah. Like you've got to stand behind the guarantee on the box. And so I, you know, if, if, if our stuff sucks, give me the blame, right? If our stuff's good, I don't need all the credit. Otherwise I'd call it Brett Bartholomew of coaching, right? But you have to have some kind of accountability and you can't just hide behind these faceless, nameless Twitter profiles where people don't want to put themselves in the arena. don't want to face criticism yet say they're in it for the betterment of the field. So I think just facing up to that kind of BS and realizing that like, I have to take a bigger perspective of how the world works uh, was a big thing that changed me. And that's, that's the most brief answer I can give you, believe it or not. We ended up creating a whole online course like made to help other coaches that kind of felt stuck and overwhelmed because you did, Andrew, like you see coaches that were really unhappy. And when we asked them, you know, we did a third party survey of more than a thousand coaches and they said, I just feel like I'm undervalued. I love my job but I feel like I'm undervalued. I kind of feel like I'm stuck. And of course you would. There's no objective way to prove the value of a strength coach because man, and you're, you're incredibly intelligent. You could write the best program, right? Let's say some divine being came down and was like, Andrew, yeah, man, you got the sauce, the best program ever. Can you guarantee wins and losses based on that program? Can you? Can you guarantee, can I guarantee that if you and your staff joined uh, let's say I was the head of the New York Giants and I hire you on. If you guys write the best programs, can you guarantee we win a Super Bowl? 
No, because no. there's too many variables in the mix, but you can increase the chances. 100%, but it's like the stock market. You're still in a business of asymmetrical returns. So when you're in a business of asymmetrical returns, like the stock market, I can have tremendous investing advice. I could be a stockbroker licensed for 46 years, know that the average rate of return in the market is positive, and then whoops, Russia invades Ukraine. Just like an athlete could follow your program, but then not follow the diet advice, not get sleep, not do this. And so when you have a field that doesn't have that security and that validation, right, then, then they crave it elsewhere. And that's why kind of this moral virtue signaling, this kind of crab in the bucket mentality is they're grasping for straws to figure out how do I validate what's the best, but then you can't. So then they get angry about it. And then, so they look to other things. Everything you just said, you know, spoken through a strength and conditioning lens, but it applies equally to personal training in the broader fitness industry, every bit of it. Okay. There is no retirement plan for personal trainers, right? Some of the stuff you were saying there is stuff that I've written about, uh, got in my presentations, in particular, the lie that it's all been said before. Like I like to point mm-hmm. out like coaches are afraid. Well, Jordan Syatt probably said that in a tweet in 2017. Well, sure. Okay, cool. He doesn't own the concept of calories in calories out. He's really good at creating nuanced messages and repeating them over and over to reach people. But, and, and here's the other way I like to illustrate it. My favorite response when anybody responds to something I post, it's I needed this today. It's because that person, maybe whatever, bad day, lost motivation, their recent entrant, that person was not consuming Jordan Syatt stuff in 2017. Their recent entrant, and I try to encourage people to be the go-to person for everybody in your world, your personal network. They're not all following you, Brett. They're not all following Jordan Syatt. They're not all following Sohili. They're following you, the trainer who's listening to me, the people that you worked with in your previous career, the people you went to school with, your friends and family in that network, and the people who found you on social media who really like your stuff. And quite frankly, you're not serving them if you're not showing up to share your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge. And as long as you're not plagiarizing something that someone else said, you're expressing it in a way that's authentic and original to you. And if you don't show up and do that stuff, you're leaving room for all the quote influencers that you complain about who are misleading people with their bullshit. And instead of complaining about those people, I'm big on this, show up, develop a brand, create reach, help the people, serve the people in front of you, more people will find you. And you're doing something to combat all that misinformation that's out there. Yeah. I mean, no question. I mean, even just what you said, you know, one of the tagline phrases of our, our online course about this stuff is you periodize your programs for your athletes or your clients. Why don't you do the same thing for your career? Right? Like you begin with the end in mind. Now somebody did end up trying to plagiarize that, but the concept itself wasn't original, right? It's like, Hey, begin with the end in mind. But as you know, with message tailoring and message targeting, you have to, people are most convinced by ideas that they believe to be their own. So you have to put it in language they understand. And it's no different than Julie uh, Cointneau, who said, you know, your brand is your fundamental promise of whom you serve, right? How you make them feel and then how you show up and deliver. And so, you know, this was a natural evolution for us where early on, if you knew me, you know, at the beginning of my career, I was just obsessive about strength and conditioning, motor learning. That was what my master's degree is in, agility. And I'm still happy to talk about those things if anybody ever wants to, just like Jay-Z. He'll still talk about rap, right? But like Jay-Z has evolved into different things now. Um, You know, for us, the initial thing was let's understand human behavior more because to be a better coach, you need to understand yourself and the perceptions of others and social psychology. 
And for us, there was a huge gap in the market because all it was was rah, rah, look them in the eye, tell them what you know, and then they'll know how much you care. We were like, no, 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 no. This is, people are complex adaptive systems and coaching is chaos theory, right? People have agendas of their own and you've got to figure out how to meet them where they are. Well, then, you know, a lot of our coaching stuff, we realized resonated with branding. So just this past weekend, we, we launched a new workshop this year called Brand Builder. And we named it that way on purpose. We wanted reactions from people on that, you know, even though our company is a leadership company that serves everybody, right? Nothing art of coaching is exclusive to branding or, or strength and conditioning. Just like nothing with Jocko Willink is exclusive to military. Nothing, you know, like we try to be broad. Um, but we know how people perceive branding. But if you look at the etymology of the term, it has always been focused just around ownership of an identity and a reputation. Cattle were branded, right? So you knew whose cattle that was. So I remember a coach saying one time, well, I don't believe in having a brand. I go, well, that's unfortunate because it's your reputation. And he ended up coming to the workshop and he was like, I get it now. There are stories people are going to tell about me, whether I'm alive or dead. And if I'm not in control of that narrative by showing up for people, as you alluded to, Andrew, then, then my impact is lost. And so the last thing I'd say to this, and then I'd like to turn it over to you, is I went to a workshop one time. It was at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. And somebody came up to me after somebody had spoke on branding from the Kellogg School of Business. And, you know, I had raised my hand and said, I thought this stuff was more important for strength coaches than they realized. And somebody who disagreed, which they had the right to, um, said, hey, you know, we just think branding takes the, the purity out of the profession. And I said, so Nick Saban doing Geico commercials means he's less of a football coach. You know, Bobby Knight doing a promotional for the, like, or if Kurt Cobain was still alive and he did a promo for an album, he's not a musician. And it's just like, think about what you guys are saying. And the reason I get heated, man, is like, you know, I, I just, uh, after nearly losing my life at a young age, I speak the language of urgency because I don't know how long I have. And I don't want to argue about things now that I don't care about at 99 years old. And at 99 years old, I don't want to be arguing about front squat, back squat, sing, you know, this and that. I don't want to sit here and convince people who say they want to make a difference that they should find ways to refine their message and put themselves out there. You either want to make a difference and you show the hell up or you don't. And then, like you said, you don't complain about it when other people get chosen over you. Cause that is hubristic. That is the absolute epitome of hubris to think in a world of 8 billion people, somebody is just going to know that you do the best work without you communicating it to anybody. That's not realistic. I agree with you. And, you know, for any longtime listeners, especially if they're familiar with, you know, my career arc, they're going to know that what you just described is, is what I've been practicing the last few years. When I met you in 2017, I was a coach for seven years, trainer in a commercial gym for six. I'd been out on my own for a year. I think me and Dean had just started this podcast, like literally that weekend we were starting to release them. And other than that, I hadn't developed anything branding around me other than a local reputation and referral network. And since then, I've just continued to, to embrace opportunities, but also create them. The podcast led to a lot of other things. I went started going to events like where I met you, connected with a lot of people. That turned into writing for my own website, which turned into an invitation to write for Team Nation, which turned into Generation Iron, which has now turned into Muscle and Fitness Magazine just this past month. Um, I am writing for these magazines that I grew up on. Like that's my, amazing. Yeah, that's fun. And then now a couple of years ago, about two and a half years ago, I embraced engaging on social media, the whole idea of let's complement a social media presence with the other things I'm doing. And that's grown into a fairly aggressive social media growth, especially on Instagram. And that has changed how people interact. All of a sudden I have 
tons of invitations to appear on podcasts. I have several invitations to speak at various different things. I spoke at Kabuki Education Week, and I've got a bunch more coming up. And if anyone listening, and again, that sounds like bragging, whatever, fine, but it's about embracing the comfort and saying, well, I value the idea of growing a larger brand out in the industry. I didn't even know some of the things that it would invite, but it's put me in a very strong position to carry forward through a long-term career that's sustainable, allows me to pay my bills and save for retirement. And I want everybody to experience that opportunity if you value it. And as you were saying, I think there's a lot of value in it. Let's- Well, I mean, and and here's the thing I'd say to you, nobody that uh, thinks that what you just said is bragging, uh, let me rephrase this. The people that get it and understand how hard it is to put themselves out there and they understand what it takes, nobody perceives that as bragging because all you're talking about is, I want to lead with value and make a change and I'm seeking opportunities and I'm diversifying the ability to do so. Right. And that's kind of the problem, Andrew, is the people that probably need to listen to this episode aren't, you know, (laughs) the minute, the minute somebody uh, sees my name or your name, if they know it's going to be, let's say like the people that think they're already good at communicating are never going to come to our workshops. The people that need the things the most tend to not seek them out because of the curse of knowledge or just Dunning-Kruger or the better than average effect and all these things. And, and that's the difficulty. Whereas the people that do get it, they're happy that you're getting those opportunities. You know, I hope you're the four. I remember the heyday of men's health and muscle and fitness, man, the writing used to be good. And I picked up one of those magazines for the first time the other day in a long time. And I'm just like, what the hell has happened? You know, like there used to, I used to like it because, you know, you could not just read about, let's say men's health. You could not just read about something training related, but then there was something really interested about being a father. Then there was something about, you know, prostate health or like there were bigger picture things there too. Now it just feels like somebody's slapping a bunch of social media stuff into these magazines and they're probably doing it to meet their readership where they are at. Cause I'm sure the magazine has lost, you know, readers, but like, for somebody like me that wants deeper, more thought-provoking content, I hope you run the world and, and put out tons of articles. And I hope you become a multi-multi-millionaire because like you winning doesn't mean anybody else losing. If anything, like you winning means more people like you are going to be inspired by that. And I think that took a long time for me too. I felt like periodically I had to apologize for the success of the book, Conscious Coaching, or I felt like there were certain people and granted, I paid way too much attention to the one to 3% of people who are not supportive, right? Because we have a negativity bias. But when I'd be speaking and all this, somebody was like, well, are you even a coach anymore? Do you just speak? And I go, well, both. I can walk and chew gum. You know what I mean? Like, that's a nice thing. And by the way, like, I I don't think that there's anybody out there that does really well for themselves that thinks, "Let let me wake up today and shit on somebody else. So by default, people that kind of get angry and hate on others' success, those are people that you know just really aren't probably doing as well as they'd like to because otherwise they'd be really happy and they they actually want to connect with you because I don't know if you feel the same way. As I evolved into more of an entrepreneur as well as a coach and all these things, man, I found so much solace in being around other entrepreneurs because they get the days where you feel like your stuff is awful. They get the days when you're filled with self-hate. They get the days where you hate your own work and they get the days when you want to celebrate something that you and your team accomplished. And they, and they love it because it's like, man, we're part of the same tribe now. There's a deep, it's almost like being a gladiator. There's a deeper relationship with somebody who's been cut. 
you just describe Luca, right? That's the way that Luca Hosovar is energy permeates everything he does, right? Tries to yeah. build people up and, and you know, he's hard work and hustle personified. Uh, and I like being around those kind of people. And I, I like going out into our industry and meeting those kind of people at these fitness events. When we were at Raise the Bar, that crowd were soaking up what you and the other speakers were saying. And they were really eager to meet and interact. And I was happy to see that after almost two years of, of not seeing much of that. Let's, yeah. let's pivot this into something else I wanted to ask because your presentation at Raise the Bar went into this. It was about the long-term viability of coaching as a career, which we know certainly been compromised the last couple of years. And how do you help coaches develop and operate by a set of values that helps them avoid burnout and ultimately have a fulfilling long-term career? Yeah. Loaded question. Uh, which part do you want me to address first? So I can give you, you can really go about it in any way, shape or form. I'm okay. terrible at asking like two questions at a time, but I give people. Oh, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. You're fine. What I'll do here is I'll try to be, I'll, I'll take kind of a pyramid. This is something that I'm working on. I'll take a pyramid model of like, uh, explaining this where the tip we call ABC is give an answer then a bridge if needed, and then context, where in the past, I just kind of, you know, because you want to give his people as much value as possible. Um, first things first, you know, in strength and conditioning, we always said the most important ability was availability, right? And that just meant do no harm, be smart with your training, because the athlete needs to be available. Don't get cute, right? I, I've trained more than, and again, this isn't a flex, but I've easily trained more than 750 pro athletes. Not one of them needed super maximally centric loading mechanisms with weight releasers, you know, not, not one. Um, and so if, if you look at it that way, the, the best ability is availability for coaches. The most important thing in your career is viability, right? So you have to look at this. Let's just be realistic. I love strength and conditioning. And in many ways it saved my life, but it is not an attractive market for somebody that wants to make decent money and have a little bit more autonomy and freedom in their life. Right. And you have to understand where you're at. Like for me in my twenties, there was nothing I loved most than that dark to dark thing. Wake up, go train the hell out of people, you know, big groups, lots of energy, lots of music, throw something in the slow cooker in the morning, do groups, footballs at six, nine, and one basketballs at 10 baseballs at three swimming and diving's at six. And then you have a dark weight room to work out in from like seven 30 to eight 30 by yourself. And then you go home, eat whatever you eat, read research journals, go to bed, do it again. Right. But I'm, uh, you're, you're crazy if you think that you're going to be able to do that at 80. Now, some people do. I have a friend of mine that's like, I would love that. You, he thinks that now, right? He thinks that now. But as you have kids, and again, every job is, for a field that's obsessed with adaptations, it's really crappy at adapting and evolving. So the first thing you have to do is recognize just the gist of it. You don't need to be in it for the money to realize at some point you need to make more money. I can't go to the bank and say, sorry, I forgot to pay my electric bill. I'm in my job for the right reasons, right? Bills aren't paid on hope and goodwill. So you need to understand that you're going to come up to a point where you're going to hit a wall because what you're doing is constantly trading your time for money. You know what I mean? There's a limit that if you get a family, if you get a family, now you have this, now you have that, the world only gets more expensive. We see that right now with mortgage rates. We see that with inflation. And even when inflation is not out of control, on average, it's about 3%. So eventually, like I told one member in our coalition mastermind group, Dave, you're, you're the man. I know you can coach like hell, but there's going to be a limit to how many groups you can run and how much you can charge at some point to where you're going to run up against a wall. 
And so you've got to think about that. No different than an athlete. There's only, even Tom Brady, there's a limit to how many years he can play in the league, right? It came out of retirement. Eventually Tom Brady is going to have to retire, but he's got additional investments, doesn't he? He's got his TB12, his crypto stuff. The other day I saw him online promoting a t-shirt like it was a panacea, right? All these people understand you, you can't have your eggs in one basket. Simple premise, yes. So what we ask coaches is, we're not saying that some coach in their 20s that doesn't even know how to program sets and reps needs to be Billy Bob entrepreneur. We are saying that there's three stages to your career generally. And this is all, um, and again, I'm not trying to, it's a shameless plug, but if people go to valuedcourse.com, this lays this out, there's getting the job. What do you need to understand from a hard technical standpoint? What do you need to do from a networking standpoint to build honest relationships as opposed to just being networked and only reaching out to people when you need something from them, right? Uh, what do you need to do to just solve that first part of your career? Then there's that part of your career keeping the job. This is when you're maybe in a managerial or director role, whatever that leadership is. It doesn't need to be that title, right? But you get the idea. You've done it for a while. You're in it. Now you're leading others. And then eventually there's that kind of like, all right, what am I doing as I advance within the job and the career? Upper tier leadership. And Gary Uckel from the University of Albany, one of the leading researchers in leadership is a great, great simple graph. And I love simplicity because I'm not that smart, especially when it comes to visuals. And he just says, listen, as you advance in your career, there's three main skills. Well, at any stage, there's the technical aspect of what you do. Then there's the conceptual, which is problem solving, resourcefulness, creativity, Right. Then there's your interpersonal skills. All of them are important at every stage. But as we move to higher level leadership, the technical aspects become less important because other people are handling more of that now. But the abstract problem solving, conceptualization, and interpersonal becomes more and more important. So think about it. Let's say you're really good at programming. I think I'm pretty good at programming. And five other people listening to this are great at programming. Phenomenal. But now that we're in the room together, what starts to separate us beyond that point, right? It's the connections you have, the relationships, the way you relate. But Andrew, this is the core point I'm going to make. This is where coaching and education has failed, has stopped short. As of 2016, a meta-analysis shows that coach development, 96% of coach development resources are on the technical and tactical, right? The rest are inter-interpersonal, and that's usually just transformational leadership. Motive. This is why we created right, what we do with Art of Coaching dealing with power dynamics, difficult conversations, building your brand. It, there is a massive asymmetry. If I looked at an athlete or a client and I saw a, that big of an asymmetry right and left limb or between power and strength, I wouldn't stand for it. Yet in our industry, from an education standpoint, we allow that kind of asymmetry. So it made sense to me that we're the only field that doesn't really practice. Coaches don't practice coaching. They just get on the floor and they work out, right? You actually have to like firefighters that come to our events, they practice, five. they don't just say, well, I learn on the job. No, you don't. You go practice, right? Military that we work with, they don't learn on the job. They go into a lot of training, a lot of abstract training. So we wanted to create the first social skills university for coaches and also one that helps them build for those later parts in their career as well to address that asymmetry. So all I'm asking coaches to do is just think because at some point, time for money, you're not going to be able to meet it. You're going to get burnout. And that has nothing to do with you not loving your job and being hardcore. That's just the reality of you're going to hit a wall at some point with how much of you is scalable. That's it. Is there anything that I made unclear? I could have done a better job explaining. No, not at all. I was going to insert a couple things that'll add some context to it. 
who are two of the most successful coaches in, let's say, let's start with basketball. Who are, who are two of the most legendary coaches in basketball history? Sure. I'm just going to think this is from my standpoint and I'm picking people that are very contrast for a reason, right? Okay. You could think of John Wooden, Bobby Knight. You can think of Popovich. You can think of people like, but there's wide ranges of how they behave, right? But I was going for Wooden and Popovich. Exactly. Uh, and what is particularly noteworthy about Wooden and Popovich? What well, I mean, the, better than the way they else? interact, the way they fostered relationships, interact, the way they deal with power dining. And, and that's also why I brought Bobby Knight in, right? Because successful is relative term. You had somebody that wanted like Wooden to be taught how to put on their socks, but Bobby Knight like choked kids and threw chairs and people still went to, still asked him to come to the wedding and probably loved him. And I'm not, I'm not saying people should choke kids and throw chairs. I'm just saying there's somebody for everyone, right? And, and this is exactly it. Popovich is legendary for selecting the right wine for the player. And if you look at NBA record, I think I read there somewhere and I can't quote uh, cite it, but when you equated for talent across all these teams, in the NBA or whatever, Popovich was the only coach that actually stood head and shoulders above everybody else for outcome. That seemed that his presence played a major role in the outcome of those teams. And obviously the San Antonio Spurs were legendary. Now, to what degree was that also having guys like Tim Duncan uh, and, and other players who are selfless team players? Who knows? But again, where does that all come from? Right. So if anybody's familiar with the basketball references, and then the other part of it is if you get into research on medical outcomes with patients, there's a lot now about the bedside manner of the doctors as yep. having a major impact on it. Well, okay, there's a lot of different ways that can manifest, but ultimately what do we have? We have all this data from all these different places that shows that the human interaction element plays a really powerful role in the outcome of someone. If that influences how patients feel and recover from disease, why wouldn't you think that would affect how a personal training client would see results in that setting based on how you are with them or an athlete, a young athlete in the relationship with the coaching excels in, in sport. It, it's all the same. But here's what I found, because you're absolutely right. And the medical world is, is kind of the founding premise of a lot of my doctoral work of like $12 billion was lost in 2015 due to litigations against medical practitioners based on interpersonal skills alone. Um, what I find, Andrew, is no, very few people, if any, don't logically understand the importance of this. When we dove deeper into why the asymmetry between technical, tactical, interpersonal is the latter is more threatening to people's egos, right? If, if I'm learning a clean and you're training with me and you're like, hey, have you ever tried this technique? Have you ever done this? By and large, right? And I'm not speaking to everybody, right? Uh, I'm going to be like, oh, thanks, man. Another tool in the toolbox. Appreciate that suggestion. That's, that's not an attack on me as a person. Whereas somebody says, hey, you could interact this way or maybe try framing it up this way. A lot of coaches who are inherently insecure, and we all have our own insecurities, take that as an, a personal affront, right? And, and that's not the case when you deal with, we've had FBI negotiators come to our clinics, we've had firefighters, and I asked them this one time because they get to interact with strength coaches and, and personal trainers. And they said, here's the thing, man, in our field, it's life and death. We don't have time to worry about ego. We just don't, you know what I mean? So if there's a better way I can talk somebody down or a better way that I can do this, I'm going to do that. They're like firefighters have to convince somebody to leave their dog in the building and get the hell out, right? And so they need to train as much as they can for that. Whereas coaches, we make the fundamental mistake, Andrew, of thinking many people got into coaching because they like people and relationships. Many people got into fitness training or strength and conditioning because they like working out or they like the confidence that that gave them. 
And then they also like a little bit of credibility and power and that feeling of being heard and listened to. So they get into these positions in power in environments they like to be a part of doing and teaching a thing that they resonate with. You know, they, they didn't get into it to learn how to be necessarily better communicators. Many of them didn't get into it because they were fascinated in social dynamics. And that's the problem with fundamentally making your passion, your job. You can't do that. You can't just make, there are people out there that love video games and huffing glue, probably not great for them to just get into esports. maybe, you know, even though it's a lucrative market. And so this is what I found you have to push since people, and you know, this people don't make decisions based on logic alone. You have to help coaches understand a simple premise. You know, we're not selling you communication and interpersonal skills. We're selling you on the fact that, listen, at some point we can guarantee you poor communication is going to cost you. It's going to cost you an opportunity. It's going to cost you a relationship. It's going to cost you credibility. It's going to cost you results. That I can guarantee. And myself as well, even though I teach it, I'm an imperfect communicator. But that's the fun because that, that, that's why we call our workshops the apprenticeship. I'm addicted to things that I'm never going to be great at. Um, but like if coaches can understand and do almost like a 24-hour recall, like they ask clients to do with their food or whatever, and I said, hey, how many times did you almost put your foot in your mouth? How many times did you say something that you wish you could have had back? How many times did you misread a situation? Now they understand communication because otherwise communication is this seemingly ambiguous term that they have trouble making sense of. Is, does that, you know, and I think that was a huge understanding for me. People did not realize communication wasn't important. They did not know what it looked like within their own life the same way they know what not being fit looks and feels like. And I'm going to highlight this because every once in a while I have a guest who comes on who does this really well and you do. And, I, and I'm going to deliberately steer the audience's attention to this. If you listen and hear the way Brett addresses me and interacts, this is both authentic, but it's also something you're very aware of in how you use my name and you always make sure that it's not just your egotistic rambling monologue. It's a dialogue that makes me feel very much a part of this conversation. Well, it's a mutual respect thing. Absolutely. And there's a skill there. And you, I, I like you from the first time I met you in 2017, I knew who you were through hearing you on other podcasts and your media stuff. I've read your book. I have a signed copy. I, I got I you a signed one. I love that. It means a lot. And I'm actually going to tell people like, seriously, don't read that fucking book. I'm going to say something in a second about books, but take note of the way that you communicate. Now you're on the spot about it, but, uh, it, it goes a long way to be endearing to the person on the other side of the mic. And, and that'll, how many people show up in my DMs and they, they, they do an ask, but they try to frame it as if they're doing like me a favor. Hey, can I send you this minute video of like, or blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, cause like that 15 minutes is, this has no value to me. And you're really just trying to like, sell me something. Sorry. But if someone authentically finds a way to do something that makes me feel like they actually care about doing something for me. Great. Like that, that's awesome. And then that person shows up and still finds a way to make it about the other person. Like if I'm asking someone to take an hour out of their time to come on this podcast, cool. You know, that's a selfish ask because I steal an hour of your time. So I've got to make this a great experience that actually shares you and your media with other people. Everybody listening, I'm serious. I want you guys to go, if you haven't already read Conscious Coaching, go check that out. That's the gateway into Brett's stuff. Go follow Brett on social media. And if this stuff is like lighting, lighting you up and going, shit, I know I have gaps here. Then go check out the website and see what other resources are there. I believe in this stuff. I think it's great. And yeah, I, think, well, I, I appreciate that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say in books, what you said about like being confronted with things that we're uncomfortable with. One of my favorite gateways into that 
are books like Conscious Coaching. Some of the books that I love that help with what you're talking about. Have you read uh, The Coaching Habit by uh, Michael Bungie Stainer? Yeah, a long time. Probably about, uh, yes, I, I have it on my bookshelf. I don't remember it by heart, but yes, I'm aware of it. I like that book, Easy Read. And then he goes on to, uh, to write The Advice Trap, which is a really important concept for coaches to understand. I love motivational interviewing in nutrition and fitness. I think the underlying philosophy there is really great. You get into this sort of stuff and it will help you understand, okay, cool. Here are the gaps. Here are the things I struggle with. I read these books and I go back to them all the time because like you said, I feel pretty good about most of the technical aspects. I just went to a Dean Somerset seminar this weekend. I've seen Dean present more than any other person. He's here in Edmonton. And I love soaking that stuff up because it was right there in front of me. But the greatest value for me is going reading books about coaching and then going to seminars and soaking up more of this stuff. So guys, start there. Conscious coaching, go get it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, th I think the thing that we're also trying to get people to understand is, you know, to be more aware of this stuff, you need to introduce them to a different language. And so for us, you know, we saw you would go and when you learn about training, you would have different things that you could use to screen athletes. You had you had terminology that you could understand to assess whether you're doing a good job. So for us, the the thing that we knew we had to create is an actual true evaluation of communication and creating seven main categories and subcomponents under that, because most people think communication is just verbal and nonverbal, which it's not, right? Paraverbal, how things are said is huge. The use of name, which is an element of personalization. So, you know, at our workshop, the apprenticeship, that is all about teaching people a language of how to understand where, where might I be falling short as a communicator based on the opinions of others, right? Because we're able to utilize strategic role playing and get people in small groups. Everybody comes with situations that they're dealing with in work in real life. And they're given foundational theory and understanding stuff that is, you know, we, we've learned way beyond conscious coaching because stuff evolves. And then we put them in situations where they interact in real time. And then they're given an evaluation. And after the evaluation, and many of them are recorded, they rank themselves in accordance to this scale. Here's how I thought I did. And it's numerical through a Likert formula. Then their peers will evaluate, hey, here's how I thought you came across in accordance with the context and the goal. And then we'll also account for group bias, where when we watch the video back, people will say, hey, Andrew, I thought you did a really good job with this. However, I interpreted this this way. Maybe if you took a pause, Brett, maybe if you did this, or Brett, if you just changed your tonality and your cadence a little bit, I felt like I would have had an easier job paying attention. All it does, none of those are personal. You're a bad communicator, Brett. You're a bad communicator. They're just like, oh, yeah, man, I didn't think of this. Or yeah, when I get excited, I can have a tendency to go fast. And because I start, it's literally just being willing to ask yourself, where might I be the issue and where can I improve, right? Uh, a former Miss Olympia came and said, three of my clients are really uh, difficult. They do this, they do that. And then by the end of the workshop, she goes, I needed to realize what you guys said about there being trends and occurrences. If there's one difficult client, that's an issue. If there's three, I might be the issue. And so for her to be able to get videotaped interactions, something our field has never done before, that no license, no certifications actually literally have an evaluation, let alone a filmed one on how people communicate and then have a discussion, which is crazy to me because your job is to communicate. Coaching cannot happen in the absence of communication. It's a social act between social beings. But now it's also something where people aren't like, oh, I just communicate like shit and I need to work on my verbal and nonverbal. No, 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 no. That's like saying, I need to work on my squat and my hinge. There's very specific components. And so that's the thing we're trying to get people to understand. One, you are not going to be judged at our workshops. Two, right? 
uh, we jump in and we fail, but that's the fun. I constantly get better at it. I'm always faced. I can't have a big head because I'm always faced with the inadequate. Some workshops, I kill it. Some workshops, oh man, I just like, I screwed up on this category. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly iterating with it. What good is it if I go out and train my squat and my swing and my press constantly, if I'm not working on the way I interact. And so it's getting coaches just, just relax. Nobody's being judged. It's not pass fail. It's not black and white. You might come to a workshop in New Jersey, Andrew, and people might be like, oh my God, dude, you're wonderful. Your dulcet tones are the most charming thing ever. And then you might attend a workshop in a different region and you get a completely different population who interprets it a different way. And they're like, hey, actually, have you thought about doing this? But think about what happens when people give you these suggestions. So we think that once people, we believe, and, and we have data to prove this, most people say, it was very intimidating coming here. But man, is it addictive now that I'm having conversations? Because I feel like I have this community that if an interaction goes wrong in my life, I now have an evaluation to look back to, people that I can talk to in a language I understand to help me increase the ability you know, of doing it. And so, but that's a hard part, man, is being the, the person that initially sells a population a product that they don't understand and that they think they're already good at. So early days, we had a lot more luck with people in the corporate realm, firefighters, policemen and women, people in the leadership community. And then once strength coaches started seeing that, they're like, what is this? Now strength coaches start coming. Now physical therapists start coming. Now, so we kind of found that we had to do this follow the leader thing. Um, and then there's also people that read the book three or four times and we're like, yo, hey, heads up. That's valuable, but we've grown a lot since then. Come practice it. Cause I can't just read about how to play the piano. I got to get my fingers on the keys, you know? Books are the gateway. Another, gateway, you, said, sure. you said a bunch of stuff that uh, was some of the substance of a new book, Cues by Vanessa Van Edwards. I don't know if you've read it yet. She talks Haven't about- Haven't heard of it, no. Uh, definitely ties into public speaking, but just interpersonal stuff in, in settings. And again, a lot of these books are really just- here's the, the theory and here's the way we can best present it for you in an easily consumable form. Now, come talk to us about our coaching because Vanessa, again, has an entire business just like you. And honestly, I think Q's is a really good book. I really like her book, Captivate, which is the first one that I got on with her stuff. So this stuff's out there. And that's why I say like, go start with the book. And then if the book really gets you excited about it, then go check out the Art of Coaching, the website and the further resources you have. I, I, again, anybody that I pull on this podcast, it's an endorsement of them, their, their brand, their integrity and their media. So I actually, now, I now we just got to get you to one, man. We got to get you. Cause I think oh. like you're, you're our ideal market where you come in, you're eager to learn, right? You're eager. Like you're, I, I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Cause we're still getting to know each other. Hmm. But like for me now, if I find a weakness, I don't get defensive over it anymore. I'm like, Oh dude, let's, let me explore this perspective. Even if you were to say, uh, I'll give you an example. Okay. And then I'd love to know how you took this. I got hired by an organization that said, I need you to speak to my audience. And this was a virtual one during COVID. Right. And they said, I kind of need you to come hard with it because we have a staff that we've been pouring a lot of education into, but they don't apply it. And so there's this sense of entitlement. And I said, okay, so like, talk to me about this. Here's four presentations I can give. And they're like this one, but just make sure that the way you deliver it kind of makes them think inward a little bit. You know, it helps if you would have a little bit of a convicting tone. They're like, we're not asking you to go overboard, but it should feel kind of like, and I go, a respectful kick in the ass. And they go, exactly. Great. So I give that presentation in accordance with the context and the goal that I'd been given. 
And by and large, let's say uh, 80, 85 to 90% of the feedback were really solid. And then there were some people that were like, why did I feel like I just got yelled at the whole time? Why did I feel like I was being challenged? Why did I feel like, I mean, literally one person was like, the presenter turned me off. It felt like they were trying to get a message across to me. Well, of course I was, you know what I mean? That was the job to be done for that podcast or for that uh, presentation. But me in the past would have been so angry at myself and maybe the other person, because I'd say, what the hell? That's what I was told to do. And how did this person not understand that? But that's theory of mind, right? Well, we know other people inherently do not know. Communication is used to bridge the gap of misunderstanding. So you should not get offended if you did a role-playing scene where somebody said, hey, you came across like this. You get an opportunity to say, here's why I did that. I see your perspective. Let me try that again. And you run it back and, and maybe you like it. Maybe you're like, ah, that doesn't really fit me. But then maybe somebody else gave you a suggestion where you're like, I like that idea. Now we're just increasing the toolbox, right? That's not personal. Nobody, nobody's the perfect communicator. Nobody. Well, I think one of the leading researchers, Owen Hargy on communication, you can't even find a podcast or a video of the guy, you know? And it looks like one of those guys that lives inside his own head, you know? And so it's fascinating because we we're trying to get him on the podcast. He's, he's notoriously reclusive. And then on the other hand, you have somebody in South Boston, you know, they talk about have a cop, pack the yacht, you know, they're talking like this, but in context, they're wonderful communicators because their buddy from across the way gets it. So it's not a one size fits all model. Just come have fun, learn how to do it, you know? And it makes sense. I mean, even as you're describing, I'm thinking to myself, shit, you know, this actually would be great. And I know you do stuff at Lucas. So it's one of those things where I get hop a plate. Like I'm up at Edmonton, right? You know, tucked away in the Northwest corner of uh, North America. But, we're in Sacramento uh, and Denver, Sacramento, Denver. We're not going to be at Luca. We're not going to be in Seattle for another year or so because we try to only go to a location once. Yeah. But get your butt to Sacramento or Denver. See, Denver would actually be perfect too. So we'll chat about that because yeah. ultimately, T Nation headquarters is an hour outside of Denver, and I want to. Oh, go right. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Danny and Chris are down there. So I wanted to go and uh, and I, I was going to go down two years ago before all the COVID stuff. I was planning. I had a Deftone concert in denver i was going to go check out deftones i've never seen them and then i was going to say all right i'm gonna stay for an extra day and just drive up there but uh, that is actually something i could work at like anybody listening to this like look for reasons to go and do this kind of stuff instead of reasons not to right like i flew down to florida during the heights of the omicron wave coming out of canada and getting back to canada getting a positive or getting a, a negative pcr test a bit of a fucking nuisance but I committed to this idea because I love the light up. There's a, I get to see Dan John speak, get to be, uh, you know, see you again, Nick Winkleman for the first time. And you and Nick are old friends. And he's a really great guy. He was on a podcast a while back. Guys, go listen to that one. And I have a question for you. Can I ask you a question real quick? Of course. Just because I know you're deeply thoughtful and I know you're somebody that doesn't kind of, again, you're confident in what you do, but you also, you know, aren't above being self-critical. What yeah. is an area that you feel like, God knows I have a million of them myself. What is an area communication wise or interpersonal skills, even though you're very aware of it and you, your decorum's great. What is an area that you were like, if I had to pick one or two things today, where would you get better? And it can be broad. It can be like how I handle myself in blank situation, or it can be something just very uh, taking a, a pause or changing your tone of voice, anything like that. You know what? I, I still think it can be, the ever-present awareness of not falling into things like the advice trap. And I think, you know, let's, let's open up for a second about it. So coaches understand what we're talking about and it ties into motivational interviewing. It's trusting the person in front of you that they know their body 
and trusting that when they come up with a decision or the idea of what they're going to do, they're far more likely to adhere to that. We, we intuitively understand that too, but it's shutting off this desire when we hear them say something to turn around and go, okay, here's what you need to do, right? And there are contexts within which that the client expects that from you. But yeah. in a lot of cases, they're going to have a better outcome. If you sit back, you ask more questions, you reframe some things, you summarize some things that they say you don't sound patronizing, which is one of the criticisms I have of motivational interviewing. It sometimes comes off as a bit patronized. You got to find your flow with that. Yeah. But to try to always stay in this mode and remember that they're going to have a way better outcome if you elicit a lot of change talk. And this is the language of motivational interviewing. But as much as I'm sitting here speaking about it. It's not a default setting that's easy to always leave on. And you yeah. can always get better at it. So that's just one of those things. And I think, because this is almost the theme of most of this episode, if you could change one thing about how you interact with your clients to have better outcomes, to have clients work with you longer, to get more referrals, to have your business thrive, it's this, because this is going to lead to greater results. Yeah, I mean, that, that I can always promise, right? There's very few things... When, when I would tell an athlete, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. There were sometimes, even if the program was well-written, let's say they wanted to increase their vertical jump. Well, maybe they got faster, maybe they got more explosive, but you know, maybe that the central nervous system was just taxed that day. And on that particular day of testing, it didn't work. Or just not every program works as you want it to for a myriad of factors, right? I can guarantee that being a better communicator will improve your chances of being more successful. And if somebody said, well, how can you do that? I don't believe you. And I said, all right, well, not only is there a litany of research, but let's imagine an anecdotal evidence, you know, the more, the better you communicate, the less likely people are to like, it, miscommunication can make everything worse, right? So by and large, if two people are going to get their ass kicked, it's usually the one that offends more people and is not like very kind. If two people apply for a job, I can tell you this, all things being equal, the stronger communicator is going to get the job because that person's going to wonder, you know, who do I want to work with? But by and large, it's just like, try being a horrible communicator and see how that turns out for you in life, you know? And it, there, there are certain contexts where it might not apply. Like if I have to get brain surgery today, I don't really give a shit if my surgeon is a great communicator. I do care if the PA afterwards that explains everything to me speaks my language. And again, that goes into it, right? But by and large, there is no excuse for people to not work on the way they interact when we are the predominant social animal on this planet. And it is the reason social interaction and our ability to do so at a high level relative to other animals and, and whatever is why we're at the top of the food chain. But it's also the reason wars are created, right? It's also the reason why businesses fail. Literally, Cristiano Ronaldo took Coca-Cola off of this uh, platform when he was doing an interview and told people to drink water. And within moments, Coca-Cola lost $14 billion of market cap, right? Elon Musk can tweet out by Dogecoin. That price skyrockets. Everything in life is communication. And so, you know, it's just getting people to kind of not be so insecure, relax, and also know that if you come to our stuff, we're not going to Tony Robbins you. You know, this isn't, ah, you know, this is like, hey, let's look at a very tactical way of understanding human behavior, why we respond to certain messages, why we're weirdos, why we frame things the way we do. And let's try to evaluate it in and outside of context so we can have better discussions about it and maybe be less of a pain in the ass in our own life, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think even people listening, some of the personal trainers listening, let's say there's people that you might provide an excellent service, but if people go to your website or any of these things, they just may not understand you and what you do. 
right? There's no true differentiation. You're not speaking to the things that they care about, the root cause. There's a million other personal trainers or whatever out there that can tell people that you're going to get more fit. You're going to be able to get back to the life you enjoy and blah, blah, blah. But everything from the message or the message itself to the imagery you used, to the way that you relate, to the way that you make them feel, to the way that you deliver is all a manifestation of communication. So instead of being defensive, actually go through your stuff. And I'm not talking to you, Andrew. I'm talking to everybody. We do this as well, right? Go through your stuff and just say, is this easy to understand? No, no, scratch that. Is it impossible to misunderstand? Is it impossible? If I say communication will uh, enhance uh, the effectiveness of your work, the effectiveness of the effectiveness of your relationships, that's, yeah, I understand that. But what's impossible to misunderstand is one thing that I can guarantee you makes anything worse in life is poor communication. That is nearly impossible to misunderstand. And so just think from the perspective of other people, what is clear? What's not clear? Even on our website, we have, if, if people go to artofcoaching.com slash courses, we make it so you cannot not get to checkout in at least three clicks. Get there in three clicks because some people want the long copy. Some people just want the short. Some people, so all this is really, if you want to be honest, it's kind of marketing psychology. And most coaches, that is coaching. You're an educator, but you also do have to sell people on a future result. They can't go take for a test drive. You can do your free trial session and all that, right? But like, you can't guarantee things. With communication, you can. It's as scalable as water and air. And so if you want to differentiate yourself, think about how you interact and think how it might be misinterpreted. Um, and it's just, it's, it's an ever, it is something that grazes my beard, brother, because and people also forget that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So something that breaks my heart is sometimes there's people that come to us and they're like, you know, I didn't hear this before. Now I did. And you're like, you're trying to get people to learn these things beforehand. Because when you think of communication, right, Andrew, people either do nothing or they go to therapy, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, there is this middle ground where you can be proactive and learn how to manage difficult conversations and learning how to persuade people ethically and all these pieces that I think is just really fun to learn. And I appreciate the fact that you're interested in it. You know, I appreciate, I do want to let you know that, like you've always been You've got it from day one. And that shows that you're somebody that is deeply reflective. I would imagine, though I don't want to be presumptuous, that you've had either a shitty relationship in the past or you've lost a client or you've done something where you've tasted your own blood. We've all done it. We've all right. absolutely done it. And you know what? You still taste the blood of those examples where you feel like, oh, shit. And this is something good for coaches to hear, too. We hear, we think about this all the time. Like you see all these perfect people on social media, these successful industry leaders. I promise you every last one of them has fucked some shit up royally to the point where it still haunts them. And you know, a few are clever enough. Again, I, I like Jordan side because Jordan will wave around shit that he's fucked up. Like Jordan tends to be actually good at this, but a lot of other people through just not having it part of their media or not even thinking about it or, or fear of projecting the fact that they failed at something they don't show this stuff very widely on their media and it leaves you thinking well these people are all perfect and they never make mistakes and we live inside of our own insecurities and every mistake that we ever remember spotlight effect classic you know it's don't have any time left to go further into it but just remember this stuff uh, all these people you see who are really success successful it's not that they don't make mistakes they're pretty damn good at stepping up and continuously doing a lot of hard work to improve themselves and going to coaching stuff. And I use Luca again, as an example, because Luca, 
not only does he bring in a lot of seminars into vigor, but Luke is there. He's learning constantly. He's hungry to be better at coaching and that it reflects in everything else he does. Brett, tell yeah. people where they can find you to actually dig into more of this stuff. Yeah, straightforward. You can access everything I do through artofcoaching.com. Just artofcoaching.com. From there, you'll be able to access courses, social media, our podcasts. We're at about 2 million downloads. We started one in 2019. Uh, we're grassroots. I always, Somebody always reaches out and is like, hey, you should do this like Rogan or Huberman. And I'm like, well, they have a full staff, you know, but thank you. Um, but anything you need from online courses to mentoring, we have so many free resources too. So Andrew did a wonderful job talking about a wide variety of books. We have a free reading list. We have, if you're somebody that feels like your weeks and your days are chaotic, if you're somebody that wants to learn how to find the right mentor, reach out to the mentor. If you're, if you're struggling with finances, because that's another thing that we don't get a lot of education on, uh, we have guides for all these things and they're absolutely free. Just go to artofcoaching.com, click around a little bit, navigate, have some fun. And uh, that's the best way. And Andrew, I appreciate you. Uh, and man, Thank you for giving me a reason to want to read some of these old school muscle rags again, because it's just like I said, I feel like I've been starved for just something that like, I don't need to read a Proust novel, but I also just don't want to read, you know, basically a tweet. And so send me your stuff. I'd love to share it. And it's just, it's nice to have thoughtful, insightful people that are still putting things down in the written word. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the time. I'll send you a couple of articles that I, I'll send you a couple of things, but I'll highlight some stuff that actually talks about branding and, and what <clears throat> I've been building some of my presentations around. Uh, everybody listening, please go check out Brett's stuff. I really believe in it. Uh, he's somebody you guys should know more about. It's going to make you a better coach. And for everybody listening uh, next week, I actually, you mentioned a Miss Olympia coach. I actually have a former Miss Olympia, Natalia Mello Wilson. She was at our workshop. I had a guess that she was the one because yeah, she's phenomenal. Really She's the one who's plugged into this kind of world. So we're working on something for Teen Nation together. I've got an article idea. I'm going to have her do the video and recently connect on social media. She's great. And yeah, she's a great person. I'm actually pulling her on the podcast because, you know, like for anybody who's part of that, like bodybuilding world, she's like classic. I think what she can't remember the year she won. I think it was like 2012. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2012. She won the Miss Olympia bikini. But she's, you know, in, a, in the coaching space with the rest of us here and she's following and soaking up stuff like she's going to your courses, right? Yeah, she came to our one in Austin, Texas. She was phenomenal. She sat in the front row and was hyper involved in everything. She, I mean, it was great. So she's coming up, uh, should be the next episode for everybody listening. You should get a totally different perspective there. And uh, if you enjoy this, if you're finding my podcast uh, through Brett's media for the first time, well, you go scroll through Nick Winkleman. And just look through the list of people I've had on Luca Hosevar. There's a whole bunch of really great people that are, you know, Brett's friends and, and peers and great educators that you may enjoy. And uh, I'd love to have you stick around. Brett, thank you so much, my friend.